This is how we overcome the movement now. Here we go. Reaching to the world with arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So we have just recently started a brand new series in which we wrestle with difficult and odd and weird biblical texts. So we started off last week by talking about Jacob and the mysterious stranger that he wrestles in order to get a blessing and a new name. Erica, where are we going this week? So this week, um, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 28, and we're going to be talking about the Witch of Endor, uh, not to be confused with the Endor from the Star Wars universe, and not to be confused with witches from Macbeth and or Harry Potter. <laughs> but in so, fairness, in fairness, our brains all went there, and that's because Star Wars has a moon called Endor, and witches and wizards usually sound more like J.K. Rowling and less like Old Testament. Yes. And who knows, all those might get referenced throughout this episode. So <laughs> the, rich, the witch of Endor, Saul is currently king of Israel. This is shortly after Samuel, the prophet, has died. All of Israel has mourned his death. And Saul is up against the Philistines, one of the major enemies of Israel. And Saul is interested to know whether or not he's going to win this battle against the Philistines. Because, you know, every ruler wants to know if they're going to win. And so... He says to his servants, find for me a medium, a witch that I may inquire of her of what's going to happen. So they send him to this town of Endor. And when Saul goes, he disguises himself to go and find this woman. And he says to her, consult for a spirit for me and bring up the one to who I'm named to you. And the woman's like, whoa, 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 hold on. You know what Saul has said about this. Like Saul has made it illegal for witches and others and wizards to to be effective and, and Saul's like listen I know that I know a guy you're fine <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're safe I'm not gonna let anything happen to you and so she asked him who who do you want me to conjure up for you and he says bring up Samuel for me well this does not turn out well for Saul because Samuel's not too pleased he's dead he's happy he's content and now he's been awoken from his death and uh, he says why have you disturbed me by bringing me up and, um, you know, he, he talks to, to Saul and basically says to him, since, since you've done this, since you've gone against the Lord's commandments, because it was against the law of, of Moses to deal with witches and, and witchcraft and, and that kind of stuff. He said, because you have conjured me up, because you have done this, that the Lord is going to turn his back on you and you're going to lose this battle. Um, cause you do not obey, um, you know, what the Lord said. And so basically Saul, who went wanting to know if he was going to win this battle, lost it for himself because he went up and conjured a witch and asked for her help to determine whether or not he was going to win the battle. So as, as I have a feeling is going to be a refrain in this series, yep, that was a weird story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it gets even weirder, like, next, right? Like, Saul is having a little bit of a tantrum, and <laughs> he refuses to eat, and so the witch, like, oh, yeah. kills a fatted calf and makes bread and, like, like convinces him and his men to eat. Like, you know, he he's just, like, throwing himself on the ground, and he refuses to move, and she's probably like, get out of my house. 
But like, if you're not going to kill me here, eat and be on your way. And it's just such a weird story. Yeah. Yeah. And it but just so in line for Saul. <laughs> ends with such an anticlimactic, they eat and they get away in the middle of the night and leave. I'm like, that's mm -hmm. a anticlimactic ending if ever there were one. One of the things that I think is stands out about the why is this so weird, at least to my ears, is like the, a story that involves calling the dead in a seance um, suggests that it is possible to con, you know to have conversation with the dead. Um, and I will at least say from my personal experience, I have never. Uh, talked with any dead people um like th and me living in 21st century industrialized world um you know tend tend to try and look for scientific explanations for things as much as possible um and you know grateful to know that the world is round and you know the antibiotics are good against you know it, it's it's not that you're possessed by a demon that kind of thing like it's weird that this story just sort of like casually goes yeah you know they conjure up the ghost of samuel like it's a thing um when so much of the rest of the biblical witness even seems to be like don't go you know don't go poking toward mm -hmm. and and so much of the rest of the bible seems at best ambiguous about whether ghosts could be a real thing or whether you're just, when you're dead, you're in the realm of the dead uh, as the, the Hebrew scriptures tend to talk about. And the new Testament has this whole other, you know, resurrection kind of way of talking, but ghosts are not usually a thing that the, the biblical writers talk about. Like spirits. I can get behind Steve, like demons and that kind of, that, that I can get behind. Um, not that I want to give them a lot of credit for things, but like, I, I get that. Um, yeah, this whole idea of ghosts I've always wrestled with. Yeah. Because I don't think demons and ghosts are the same thing. Um, and like you, I, I've never been to a seance. I've never tried to, to speak to somebody who has gone, you know, gone before me. I, I don't want to. Yeah. Because um, I think that would freak me out, even if it, if they had a good message for me. I think it would so freak me out because I'm like, um, why are you talking to me? Right. It I think that the language they use here is so interesting because they never call Samuel a ghost. Mm -hmm. um, but like, so when, when Saul is talking to the woman and, um, you know, he's all like, what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And Saul continues to question her and asks, what is his appearance? And she answers, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And that's how Saul, like, Saul's like, yep, that's Samuel, right? Because <laughs> old the man, only in a old robe. man he knows wrapped in a robe. Sure. Um, but like, she calls Samuel a god. And uh, like, to me, that's another just like really weird detail of. <clears throat> what did she mean by that? Like it is she, because is he, cause he's a man of God. Right. Is she recognizing God's divinity through Samuel or does she like legit think he is a God? 
Well, and and even more slippery, not to wade too too far into the weeds of the Hebrew here, but but my guess is that the word that's used here is the Hebrew L, which sometimes can mean like capital G God, like we talk about, you know, the one true God, and sometimes is used for like you know the divine beings, like, you know, like there will be phrases in the in the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, the divine council was talking, and or you know God said to uh, the angels, I say you are gods, and like it's the Hebrew is that. Is, is this word El or in the plural Elohim, which again, confusing because sometimes the word Elohim can mean God, the one true God. And sometimes it is a plural word, meaning multiple, I don't know what you want to say, divine beings, demi, like we, we don't, we don't use the word demigod very often in, in Christian theology. Cause we don't think about like half divine beings, but it's almost kind of like that, that every so often at the peripheries of the Hebrew scriptures, there's this, you know, the beings that are kind of like God, but aren't quite like, sometimes they'll talk about the angelic being like the seraphim or the cherubim the same way. And, you know, we're quick to go, Oh, Oh, cherubim, you know, the cute little, you know, fat baby angels with, you know, uh, Cupid arrows. And no, they're like, you know, flaming sphinxes with, you know, lasers shooting out of their eyes in the Bible. Um, and seraphim, you know, they're they're angels, but they got six wings and they've got lion parts and they are on fire. Um, I, I think like in that category, the, the, the Bible is much more used to talking about those kind of figures as divine or divine adjacent beings and mm-hmm. most of our pop theology is just sort of filter that out and said there's one god there's a bunch of angels and nothing else and the hebrew scriptures are a lot more ambiguous maybe than we want them to be yeah and in the nrs we call she refers to him as the divine being so like what you know what is it about him that makes him look this way it makes him look so different because then, you know, like you said, Sarah, in the next sentence, he, he's an old man wrapped up in a rope. Like, you know, when I think of divine beings, like you said, Steve, I'm thinking seraphim, cherubim, who don't look human. Yeah. <laughs> you mean you're not thinking about old men wrapped in robes? <laughs> no. So, and again, like, I don't know how how you would make this story come to life if you were a movie maker would would you have this all you know a vision inside the 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 woman's head would you have you know uh you know cgi effects would it just be a regular person dressed in a robe but like somehow this is a supernatural moment that both the woman and king saul think that they are being visited by the living presence of Samuel and sort of to your point earlier, Erica, neither of them says it can't really be Samuel. Cause that's not in our metaphysics. It's gotta be a demon, you know, pretending to be Sam. Nobody says that nope. they just sort of accept at face value. This is Samuel. And because he says the thing that Saul expects him to say, they treat this like, yep, this is really Samuel's, uh, you know, verdict here spoken on behalf of God. Um, and again, that's part of what makes it complicated is that at least my version of Sunday school faith grew up with, there's no such thing as ghosts. There's angels, there's God, there's demonic spirits out there maybe. Uh, so don't use a Ouija board, but there's no ghost. So that can't be a thing. And then here's the Bible going. Yeah. So there was this one time when they consulted what for lack of a better term was the spirit of the deceased Samuel who actually did make an appearance and actually did speak. Uh, and, and, I wish that the Bible were simpler or, you know, had filtered that out sometimes, but we got it. And here we got to live with this messy reality. And even like a true ghost story, right? Like what Samuel says is horrifying. Like at one point he even says, and your sons will soon be with me. 
yeah. like oh. that's that's how bad Saul yeah. is about to lose is that soon his sons will be with me as in me the dead guy yeah yeah it's yeah. horrifying yeah yeah it, and the whole reason he does this is because God has stopped speaking to him um, to, to, to Saul you mean yeah yeah to, to Saul and so obviously Saul has done some crazy stuff before this to get yeah. God to stop speaking to him and stop answering him in any way shape or form but yeah, yeah I mean it, it's just the it's one of those just really really creepy stories yeah of the Old Testament um, and I'm not sure exactly besides you know don't play with Ouija boards don't you know, <laughs> witchcraft that kind of stuff which I mean, there's laws against that in the Old Testament anyway. So why do we need a story like this? Right. Um, except to really drive the point home. You know what? What is the purpose of this story? That I, I I'm not exactly sure. I, I I think there's a couple of things that I can I can think of. One is at at sort of face value in the the narrative of the the succession of kings and this is sort of in that transition period mm-hmm. as Saul is on his way out and the new king David is going to be sort of ascending to the throne and there's a real ambiguity about David too we have a way of wanting to remember David as the noble right and good you know he's the righteous king who's after God's own heart but at this moment in the story David <laughs> is working for the enemy the people that that Saul wants to know if he's going to win against David has been conspiring and working for the Philistines. And so part of Saul's question, I think, isn't just, am I going to win against our national enemy, but am I going to win against my rival for the throne here? Um, And it does seem like the, the biblical writers want to convey that there is this tension between Saul, who at some point is not at all interested in trying to align with God's, agenda or priorities and that david at least in his best moments is trying to do what you know yahweh wants um and it seems like part of this story is like trying to show just how out of whack or how bad or how villainous or crooked uh saul has gotten i guess that that seems to be a, a piece of it to me so the other thing about this story that that calls to mind is that the prophets and and Samuel's kind of remember it as like the last of the great judges and the first of the prophets that the, the prophets have this role of being the, like the gadfly, the unwelcome thorn in the side of the powerful people. And yet they are necessary that like for most Mm -hmm. of Saul's reign, Samuel has been around continuously pointing out when Saul blows it, you know, he's like, he's the check and balance. The prophets are supposed to be that kind of, speaking truth to power, you know, role institution in ancient Israel. And throughout the time that Samuel is alive, Saul doesn't like that there's this guy consistently calling him his out on his garbage <laughs> um, and saying, hey, you're not supposed to do this. Or, hey, listen to what God says. Um, but when Samuel's finally gone, Saul misses it. That like, we need mm-hmm. those, like, to me, this is one more of those points of like, as much as we don't like it, we need those voices Um and I, I heard I heard a, a quote not long ago. I think it's a Daniel Berrigan quote that says something like, um, "The poor show us who we are, and the prophets show us who we could be. So we hide the poor and we kill the prophets." Um, but like this idea that like nobody wants to have those kind of prophetic voices show us where we fall short or even tell us how we could do better because we don't want to admit the ways we're blowing it. But we need those voices and to recognize that those figures. 
um, are important. And, and even when they're agitating, even when they say they speak an uncomfortable truth, you need them, especially people in positions of power and authority need those voices for accountability's sake um, and to offer that minority report. And part of what the prophets did at their best was to call out when the emperor was wearing no clothes, so to speak, because they didn't get anything out of it. Like the, you know, the, the king wants people to believe what the king wants because that will you know, consolidate their power. But the prophets don't get anything. They don't have any political office or power or wealth. They're just called to speak, you know, whatever the truth is that, that God has raised them up to say. Um, and to me, it reminds me that sometimes the worst thing that can happen is for God to stop sending those uh, voices that, uh, that, that uh, you know, smack you upside the head with God's love or with God's word. You know, sometimes we need those voices and the scariest thing could be for them to fall silent. And it's interesting. I think that, you know, Saul, as much as he didn't like Samuel calling him out on his crap when, when Samuel was alive, you know, when he calls on Saul or Samuel after he has died, Samuel continues to call him out on his crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, what did you expect? <laughs> like, really? Did you expect him to say something nice to you? That does um, seem like that's good? part of how you know this is really Samuel. <laughs> He's still the old man yelling, get off my lawn. <laughs> like, yeah, even the first thing he says is, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Yeah. Like, it just kind of reminds me of being called to the hospital because one of your parishioners is there and you go in and they're asleep <laughs> and you wake them up because they asked you to come right. and they're all like, what do you want? And it's like, you asked me to come, I'm sorry. <laughs> Right, right, right. There's a there's a, a passage in the book of Amos um, that comes to mind too. There's a, a part where the prophet is speaking this this announcement of God's judgment, and he says, "The worst thing I can do to you is I'm going to send a famine, not of crops in your field, but a famine of the word that I will stop speaking, like because you stop mm-hmm. listening." And mm-hmm. I, I can remember like thinking, "Man, what a haunting thought that like." Sometimes when we when we are so dead set on ignoring what God's going to say, it is a reminder to me that sometimes the worst thing that God can do to us is to give us exactly what we ask for. Um, and that sometimes it's to remove those voices that we've stopped listening to. I mean, Jesus regularly, too, seems to think that on the whole, the people didn't do a good job listening to the prophets. but They kept, you know, stoning them or throwing them out of town or throwing them into wells and things like that. Um, and that this story seems to be a reminder to me too, that we need those voices, even if they make us uncomfortable and make us squirm. Um, So I guess I'd say whether or not that's why whoever compiled the books we call first and second Samuel, you know, held on to it. To me, it seems like there's wisdom for us to draw on. This is one of those stories that shows us maybe why we need those prophetic voices. Just don't conjure them up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe the lesson is listen to them while they're still living, right? This is just one of those ones that has always stuck out to me. You know, as one of those you're never going to hear it in Sunday school. Um, you're probably not going to hear it from the pulpit, <laughs> but yet it, it's there. And I think there are some good lessons that we've discussed that you know we can learn from this, even though it's not one that we're we might even be aware that is in there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, since, since you mentioned it that way, I, and I, I think it's it's important to note, while it's unlikely that uh, anybody might hear a uh, 
sermon, at least with much frequency on this story. Part of that's because this story is not only long, but requires a lot to unpack it. And a Sunday morning mm-hmm. sermon is not a great spot to do that because that means it's it, for the first week, it's going to be a, a, an hour worth of, you know, setting the table and then we're going to have a sermon on it. And then we're going to talk about what it meant um, that uh, there's other venues, you know, like a conversation like this or a Bible study or whatever. And it kind of makes me think of like, if the Bible is sort of this family album of the stories of the people of God, there are some pictures that are self-explanatory that you put up on your mantelpiece that don't require any explanation and you just put up for, you know, visitors to see in your house. And there's others and other family stories that you don't tell, you know, at the reunion, but those are like the, you know, in your adulthood talking with your, you know, now grown up parents mm-hmm. and you're a grown up yourself, the stories around a kitchen table when you're now old enough to talk about them, that kind of thing that are important stories, but maybe have a lot more unpacking that need to happen than what you could hear when you were a kid, you know, hearing the short version of family stories. It may be the Bible's like that too. And this is one of those stories that is worth eventually coming to and exploring but it's not it's not the family photo we put on the mantelpiece because there's an awful lot of baggage that goes with it. It's one of those skeleton in the closet stories that probably needs to be told, needs to be heard, needs to be understood. But because it's a skeleton in the closet, it doesn't make us look good. Yeah. We try to hide it. Yeah. Intentionally yeah. or unintentionally. And in a way, it feels to me like there's a, a difference in between this story and last week when he talked about Jacob wrestling with the whomever, um, that that's also not a great story as far as Jacob is concerned. Like he doesn't come off as a hero. He's sort of a, you know, chicken heart who wrestles a stranger, but that God's goodness in the midst of that story makes something beautiful there in a story like this, where basically God just leaves Saul to his own devices. All we get is the ugliness of the, the, the dysfunction of, of the King. Mm-hmm. And there's not a moment of redemption of, and Saul turned it around and it turned out to be a good, good, good guy in the end, but we still need to tell the stories, even if they don't end with a neat, tidy bow at the end, there's still, those are stories that are part of our spiritual family history, so to speak, and are worth telling, but maybe, maybe around the kitchen table instead of publicly from the altar or something. And there's a lot more stories that are like that than what we realize and, and think because we so often focus on the ones that have a nice, happy, easily wrapped up ending. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of those, um, how about we gather again next week for another episode as we take a look at more weird Bible stories here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.